Good morning. Good morning. Well, my name is Matt Sawada. Uh, I, it's an honor to be able to, to open God's Word and, and to, to process through the book of 2 Corinthians to continue that process with you this morning. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at LEFC. Uh, I have the privilege specifically of being the pastor of adult ministries, which means uh, I get to interact with life groups and ABFs and the deacons and the deaconesses with men's ministry and women's ministry, some of the pastoral care that happens here. And it's, uh, I've loved it. Thank you for allowing me to be on staff at this church. You know, one of the things that I've learned over the, the couple years I've been here, um, I've learned, learned a, probably more than just a couple things about myself and about ministry and God, but one of the things in particular that, that you have taught me is that we're all similar. You're like, Matt, you don't be a rocket science to learn that fact, right, that truth. Um, I'd say every one of us, every one of us is either experiencing, well, every one of us has experienced, but probably is experiencing some sort of relational brokenness. And by relational brokenness, I mean um, it might be a spouse, a kid. It, it might be a parent. It might be a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, someone within our sphere of influence, our oikos. It might be someone at a distance or someone very close, but I would say every one of us, if we were to think through the people in our lives, we are experiencing some sort of relational discord, this, this conflict that happens and that it is happening probably in every one of us. Now, for some of us, it's severe. Some of us, you know, um, I'll start with the other end first. You know, it's kind of, if you, you think of these relationships like you're walking on ice, some of us are on really thick ice, and we've just heard the small crack. And it's not a, it's not a significant problem yet. You know, you're still on ice. And when you start hearing that ice crack, you begin to realize that, this probably isn't a good thing. Others of us are, take that same analogy, are walking on thin ice. And the, the struggles and the stresses in your relational world is about to get significant if it hasn't already. There's others in this room, unfortunately, where that ice is already broken. And you're swimming. And it's cold and it feels lonely. But one thing we all have in common is we're all on ice, aren't we? We're all, we've all experienced that walking on eggshells. We've all experienced some of that relational pain, baggage, hurt. You know, I... I hope that you walk away this morning hearing two things. It's going to be a quick sermon. Just two things. And it would be We have plenty of time before the game. <laughs> it's not even a late game, right? It's like 3.30 or something. 
But uh, the first thing I hope you walk away with this morning is that you're not alone. You're not alone in that relational brokenness. You might feel it. A lot of times that relational brokenness creates an isolation from, from others. But I want you to hear this morning that you're not alone. Not only is, do you have a Lord and Savior who's comforting, who's the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, but you have a community who is going through something similar, vastly different possibly, but something similar as you. Allow someone in. Allow someone to walk on the ice with you. Secondly, the first truth that I want you to walk away with this morning is, uh, yeah, we're all on thin ice in some ways, but we're not alone in that journey. Secondly, the truth I want you to walk away with is that our God is a God of restoration. Our God, restoration is at the, at the core It's at the center of God's heart. Who God is, is synonymous with restoration. Sermon's done, right? Just kidding, I got a couple more minutes. Um, That truth, though, that restoration is at the core of God's heart has been true since the beginning of time. He's a restorative God. And you see, all the way back in Genesis 1, God begins creating things. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. Then he creates man. And it was not good for him to be alone, so he creates Eve. And in that moment, they are walking and talking and interacting with a perfect heavenly God in perfect community. It's this Garden of Eden. And then Genesis 3 happens, and you see Adam and Eve choose to worship the created instead of the creator. They worship self rather than him. And what happens? That ice cracks. God can't be in the presence of sin, so he removes them from his presence. Genesis 3. From that point on, Genesis 3, through the end of Revelation, you have a theme of restoration. It's almost as if there's two chapters to our Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, to 3, 15, and then from that point on, through the end of Revelation. It's two chapters, right? And... What we begin to see is post-Genesis 3, post the fall, you see God starting to restore his people. You see, oh man, things got ugly. And so he talks to Noah and he wipes out all of civilization with a flood, but then promises with a rainbow that it won't happen again. And then you see in in, uh, Genesis 12 with Abraham, 12 and 15, God is making a covenant with his people. And he promises through this Abrahamic covenant, land, Seed and blessing. And then you keep fast forwarding through the book of Genesis. You get Isaac. Isaac gives birth to Jacob and Esau. 
Jacob, then God restores him, right? He, Twelve sons, changes Jacob's name to, to Israel and basically chooses a people in doing so. These are my people. You see, towards the end of Genesis, Joseph, you know, helping the Pharaoh in Egypt, he is beginning to restore what is broken through famine. The Exodus brings about this guy named Moses. And Moses, all right, here's this baby floating down the water. He is welcomed into this king's house. Moses sins, runs. God restores him by using him to save the Israelites. Sometimes they would disagree with what save meant. But Moses is on this journey of restoring Israel, and God on Mount Sinai makes another covenant with Moses. It's called, there's 10 of them, commandments. And through this old covenant, God is beginning to teach Israel, Israel, how to interact with him and how to interact with each other, what to do and what not to do. And then you've got all these, these other books throughout the Old Testament that begin to explain what some of these laws are and why we should listen to them. Why is this important for God's people to interact with one another this way? So keep going. You get David. God, again, continues his restorative process when David sins and God forgives him. And even out of that promises Jesus to be a part of his line. One of David's sons, Solomon, is one of the greatest kings ever. One of the wealthiest men, the most knowledgeable men we know. But we begin to see division continue. Humanity happens. And you see a division. You've got Judah over here and Israel over here. The sons are divided. And then eventually, it's Jeremiah, who's the weeping prophet in chapter 31, who promises a change. There's a new covenant. Here's Jesus. You no longer have these rules written on stone. I'm going to write this in your hearts, he says, because I want to restore this people back into relationship with me. Jesus is born, and we get 30-plus years of a glimpse at what a perfect human being looks like. It's perfect. His birth, his life, his death, and resurrection all had a purpose, and that purpose was restoration, restoring you and me to our Heavenly Father. And we see Jesus' 12, his crew, his boys, they begin to form this thing called a church. And they begin to take this message of restoration, not just to those who are clean, but to those who are broken. You see, Jesus realized, yeah, this is people that need to take this message. And that's where missions was born. That's the heart of missions, is restoring those who haven't heard 
to the one who restores. Flip a couple pages past in your Bible, you get to Revelation, which is a prophetic book describing what it will look like once we're restored. It's a beautiful picture that gives us hope of what one day will come. You see, you can take restoration throughout all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, and this is God's heartbeat. This is who God is. Our God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a God who restores. Is a God who wants to take us and bring us back into relationship with him. To take what is broken and to begin to fix it. And 2 Corinthians falls right into that theme of restoration. Paul is writing a He's, he's going beneath the surface, all right? That's the, the title of our whole sermon series. He's going beneath the surface by writing this personal pastoral letter in hopes to comfort this church as well as restore relationship with them. And in particular, in chapter two of 2 Corinthians, Paul, what we're gonna see this morning is Paul is going to make an appeal to this church to this Corinthian church on behalf of an unknown believer to reconcile their differences so that Satan's schemes don't prevail. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to kick off in verse 5 here. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 of 2 Corinthians 2. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So if you're reading this, uh, you've got to ask a question. Who is he? Who is anyone? Right? In, in verse 5, if anyone has caused grief... He has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Who's the he? Some commentators think that the he is the gentleman in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who made some bad choices and was um, committed sexually to his mother-in-law. And Paul said, that's a no-go. That's not a good thing. So I would ask you to cast him out of your midst. So some people think this is a specific he, and that he was someone that, that Paul had referred to in 1 Corinthians. Other commentators think that this he uh, is still a specific he, but there, there could be other instances. There could be other people that this represents, people who might have openly and pretty boldly defied Paul's apostolic leadership. Other commentators think that we don't know who this he is. They'd say this he is an unknown he. Probably a very practical. There's a situation that Paul and this church know who this he is, but, but these guys think they don't, they don't know. I think that we can learn something, no matter who the he is, from this story, from this text, because we can begin to realize that in verse 5, 
whatever the situation is, their sin caused grief. Do you guys realize that? That your sin, that your choices, the big ones and the little ones, have the potential to cause grief within your relational circles. When you choose sin, you hurt somebody. You not only hurt him, you hurt the Lord. His heart is grieving over the choices of his people. But when I choose to sin, I hurt my wife. My sin could hurt my relationship with my kids. My sin could hurt the relationships with, with my coworkers. Your actions, your choices, in particular the sinful ones, have ramifications and they, they cause grief. They cause pain. Do you begin to realize that? So often we make our choices and our decisions in a vacuum. And we don't realize the ripple effects of choices that we make. The great thing about this text, you know, Paul is, is speaking about this scenario and saying, yeah, we are all hurt. Paul is partially hurt. This church is hurt. But when Paul challenged them to remove this person from community, they listened. In some ways, he's celebrating the fact that they were obedient. He tells them in verse 6, he said, The punishment that you inflicted on them, on him, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority, it's sufficient. That means they listened and they actually followed through with the steps that Paul had encouraged them, probably in 1 Corinthians 5, whether it's that person or not. So he's saying, hey guys, good job. The punishment you inflicted, it was, it was sufficient. The problem is, is they swung the pendulum a little too far. Because what he then goes on to say, he said, okay guys, the desired effect happened. You, you got this individual's attention and he repented. He has changed his ways. He's saying your rebuking work was good. But the restoring work is just as important as that rebuking work. The purpose of a church discipline context is not just to kick someone out because there's sin in them. We'd be a church of zero. The purpose of church discipline is restoration back to Christ. And so he goes on here in verses 7 and 8 to explain what that looks like. He's saying, okay, now instead of this discipline, now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Paul's saying, guys, good job on the discipline. Now restore him. This is so in line with everything that is said about who God is. 
not about kicking him out. It's about, okay, now he's repented. Let's restore him. Let's welcome him back in. And what does this look like? This is a strong phrase. Forgive him. Forgive him. This is so powerful. See, forgiveness is not just empty words. So often, you know, you're, you're working with, um, well, just in my family, with my kids, my son will do something to my daughter, or my daughter will do something to my son. It happens both ways. Oh, all right. Now, son, say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then he walks the other direction. Oh, has he really forgiven her? No. He just was sharing empty words to his sister to appease dad in that moment. There was no heart change. And in my mind, I'm like, well, we got more work to do here. We got more work to do. Let's talk through what forgiveness really is. It's not just saying, I'm sorry and moving on. It's not empty words to avoid conflict. Conflict avoidance is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is also not the equivalence of trust. You know, if I, if I welcome someone into my house and they steal from me, they steal, I don't know what they would steal, but they stole something. I could forgive them. I could bring them back into my house. We could have dinner with them the next week. But I still might lock up some things. I still might lock up whatever is valuable in my house because I don't trust them. Forgiveness is not synonymous with trust, necessarily. Trust could be a byproduct eventually, but trust is something they're probably going to need to re-earn in that sense. But forgiveness is, is not necessarily saying, I, I trust you. There are still consequences to those actions. You know, so often, I think we, um, we think forgiveness is a feeling. I don't think it is. There's, there's one thing about, uh, you know, between Richard and I, Richard, I forgive you, and now I feel really good about it. it that's not necessarily forgiveness. That's a, that's, that's a feeling. And so what forgiveness is not, is not just empty words. It's not just conflict avoidance. It's not just the equivalent of earning back someone's trust. Forgiveness is freedom. I have a friend who's a pastor in New York. His name is James Robertson. He says that to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. Think about that for a minute. So often where I, I'm trying to work this out with Richard and I think my forgiveness is for him, well, in reality, it's the heart surgery that's happening in Matt <laughs> that allows forgiveness to happen. I'm sorry, I'm picking on you, Richard. So you get for sitting in the front row. A working definition of forgiveness is it's the act of releasing a person or people from an offense as well as the resentment that you have for them as a result of the offense. 
So it's not just overlooking what they did, but it's releasing the resentment that we're now clinging to because of their actions. It's a double-edged to that. So Paul doesn't just stop there. This process of restoration isn't only about forgiveness. He says, again in verse 7, he said, Instead, now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. Two weeks ago, I had the privilege of looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 with you. This God, this Father of all compassion is the God of all comfort. And he extends comfort to us so we can extend comfort to those around us. Excuse me, he's not just saying that forgiveness is what we should do, but we should also comfort them. We should love them. We should care for them. We should speak truth into them. There's a comfort that happens through God that we can extend that is not a human comfort. Paul's saying to go there. He's saying, forgive him, I want you to comfort him, and then I want you to reaffirm your love for him. What, is, what does that look like? Reaffirming your love? Is it just like, I love you, bro, and you just kind of do that little pound on the back? Maybe. I think that reaffirming your love for somebody probably means inclusion. I'm starting to welcome you back in. Maybe it's a Super Bowl invite. That's probably not what he's challenging the Corinthians to do. Invite him to the Super Bowl. Um, it, it could be a life group, including him back into what he once was a part of. It could be including him to, to your dinner table. And so often over food, real conversation happens. Probably, I'd say, almost real ministry happens in that moment. And so including him, welcoming in, I think most disciple-making moments happen when invitation is extended. I don't think you can eventually invite someone to to know your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if you haven't invited them into something before that. I think invitation is essential to the people around us. And it might just be a, hey, can I pray for you? I've just invited him into a relationship with me. It might be a cup of coffee. It might be an invitation into who knows what, to a church event, to a family gathering. But I think invitation is key here. Reaffirming their love means, okay, I want to be around him and with him, and I am going to include him into something that is important to me. I think Paul is telling the Corinthian church in this moment, probably inclusion on a broader scale is what's needed. I think he's telling them to reaffirm their love for him. Why don't you welcome him in and actually take communion together? I think he's, he's saying, hey, you need to include him as a community. 
break that bread and drink this cup because you've both been forgiven by the same Jesus. You see this pattern happen again throughout Scripture. Luke 17, verse 3, says that if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You see, it's, it becomes an obedience thing. So often we don't want restoration because it might be uncomfortable for you and me. This person has wronged me. I don't want to be with him. I don't want to include that person back into my life. Well, Paul is telling us something a little different here. He gives us three reasons why we should restore back into community. First of all, why we should do this, why restoration is important in this relationship, it's for his sake. Whoever he is in this moment, whoever he is in your relational sphere, why should we restore? It's for their sake. Because we begin to see here that this person, in verse 7, at the end of it, we should do this. We should forgive and comfort so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Our forgiveness and our comfort in reaffirming our love for that person partly is for their sake. It's to save them from that sorrow. They've repented. They're on the outside looking in. And when you forgive, comfort, and reaffirm your love for them, you begin to change their theology. Imagine this. Imagine, imagine that, that you are the one that, that has an opportunity to welcome someone back in, to restore someone back into community. You're helping them begin to realize that what God actually says in Scripture is true. Who Jesus is, there is a God, and he loves me. If a community doesn't welcome them back in, what's that community saying? Yeah, your love, dude, you, you screwed up so bad, Jesus doesn't even love you. You don't deserve to be in our presence. That's not, that's not gospel. That's not That's not truth. And so we need to restore for their sake, but we also need to restore for our sake, for the church. Paul's telling them here in verse, in verse 10, I'm sorry, in verse 9, another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. We should restore out of obedience, if not love. God doesn't ask us to do only what's comfortable. He wants us to step out of that comfort zone and restore someone who was potentially our brother. This person might look different. 
This person might act different. This person might have a different uh, social scene, a different uh, theological bent. This person could be different from us. But that's great. That's okay. Because the church isn't only for the clean people who look like Matt and say amen. The church isn't for those of us who are clean and have it figured out. Because who does? The church is zero. And so it's restoration should happen for his sake, for our sake, obedience, but also for Christ's sake. He goes on to tell us in verse 10 that anyone you forgive, I also forgive. Paul is the I. And what I, Paul, have forgiven, if there was anyone, anything to forgive, I, Paul, have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Don't let Satan take advantage of you. Unforgiveness is a powerful foothold for him. Just as forgiveness is powerful, the inverse is also true. Unforgiveness is equally, unfortunately, as powerful. It's a root issue and is key to the schemes of the enemy. I think in this text, in these six verses, Paul identifies several schemes of Satan. I'm just going to highlight three of them. First of all, in verse 9, another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. I think his first scheme happens when we show partial obedience. When there's partial obedience on our part, we begin to feel pretty good about ourselves. Corinthian church, take them for example. Hey, we did a good job at kicking this buddy out. <laughs> Look at us. Yeah, we, were, we are righteous. Now what begins to happen in that moment is judgment is cast. You begin to see um, that self-righteousness begin to bubble up in, inside of you. Have you ever experienced that? Or if you do something halfway, you're obeying enough, but not all the way. I see it in my kids all the time. I see it in me all the time. I do what's easy, what fits my gift set or my personality, and I don't do what causes stress in me. It's called partial obedience. And when we choose that, something is birthed in us, and it's dangerous. I think secondly, we begin to see that, that phrase, excessive sorrow. When we become overly Pharisaic and very, uh, I am better than you-ish, it begins to crush the people around us. It causes a sorrow in them because they haven't attained a standard. They haven't done the right thing, given enough, served in this way. I'm not as good as you. So now I've just created doubt in them. I've squashed them a little bit. And what Paul is worried about here is the way we can crush people with this excessive sorrow, 
This is, this is an oppression here. When we keep them on the outside looking in for too long, it creates doubt in them and in a way casts judgment on them. This is ugly. This is a horrible reality of humanity. Guys, don't let that scheme be a part of who you are. Lastly, unforgiveness. I've already mentioned it a little bit. Unforgiveness is an open door to the enemy. When we harbor that resentment and when we hold on to it between you and someone else within your broken relationships, you see bitterness begin to creep in. You see pride begin to increase. You see all this junk begin to fester inside. Truth is skewed and relationships are crumbling. That is not what our restorative God wants for our community. That is a scheme of the enemy, and you just call it that. Own it, pray it, and then release it. You see, when we withhold forgiveness from somebody, it's almost as if we're choking someone. It's almost like you have them by the throat, and you're choking them, and you're saying, you owe me. And there's no gift of grace in that. There is only cruel judgment. It's this, it's a commitment to retribution, not to relationship. And so Satan would love to see this Corinthian church as well as our community, any community, broken and fractured over sin. That's kind of his end game. If God is a God of restoration, his enemy is the opposite. They're ugly realities that are not only counterproductive for the kingdom, but are also opposite of what God would want for us as a church. Nowhere in this Bible does he ever challenge us to be perfect. It's not about perfection. That was Jesus on our behalf. It's a matter of us identifying our need. It's a repentance, and then it's a belief. It's a removal and a replacement of truth. That'll preach. You know, my wife says this all the time to me, to those we meet with. She says, to make a relationship work, there needs to be not an absence of sin, but an abundance of grace. Because there will be conflict. We are always on ice because there's two sinners in fellowship with one another. There's always ice. It's not a matter of living life with no conflict, living life with no sin, because that's impossible. Now, it's a matter of owning that and extending the grace that we've received from him. So here's this reality, right? We're not perfect. No one in this whole text, these six verses, were perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. This hit me on Tuesday. I don't know how many times I've read these six verses in preparation for this over the last couple weeks. Tuesday, God did something in Matt. On Tuesday, 
you know, I was kind of clicking along, reading, totally identifying with the Corinthian church. Like, yeah, let's kick them out. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Yeah, we need to be better, a better church about restoring and comforting and forgiving. And something happened Tuesday where I began to realize, whoa, wait a second. I resonate more with the dude who's been kicked out than I do with a perfect church. I need to switch seats. I need to, I need to sit on the other side of this aisle because I, I'm a sinner just like the guy who's been removed from community. And I think Paul is instructing this church to act towards this person exactly how God interacts with you and me. I think this is just a, on a broader scale, this is how God interacts with humanity, welcoming us into his church. So let me reread a couple of these verses. I'm going to shift some words, some pronouns. Since you have caused grief, you've not so much grieved us as you have, have grieved the rest of us. Not to put it too severely, the punishment that we inflicted on you hopefully has been sufficient. Now instead, we ought to forgive and comfort you so that you will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge us. I urge us to to therefore reaffirm our love for you. You see, God wants us to forgive, to comfort, and reaffirm our love. The beautiful part is he's willing to do this as often as we are willing to repent. And that's a truth that I think can be missed. When we think of ourselves as perfect and holy and righteous and we're casting out those who are dirty, that's just not, that's not true. God wants us to call sin, sin. He wants us to hate what is evil and cling to what is good, Romans 12. He wants us to, like he's told Timothy, to flee from immorality. He wants us to not only receive forgiveness when we've sinned, but he wants us to extend that forgiveness, especially when we've been sinned against. He wants us to love one another. He wants us to forgive one another. He wants us to carry one another's burdens, especially when they're not perfect. You know, God saw us as an outsider. Ken read this earlier, Romans 5, chapter 8, that while we were still sinners, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, beautiful phrase, Christ died for us. And God has forgiven us, and he comforts us, and he reaffirms his love for us time and time again. You see, this forgiveness is a fruit of a right response to our confession of being sinners. 
This is a, a truth here, 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and we and, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Our God is in the business of restoring broken people into relationship. That's what he's about. That's at the core of this text, and that should be at the core of our hearts. That should be what we're about. Guys, forgiveness is hard. This is an easy text, and it elicits pain, and it brings up memories of brokenness. It's not easy. Forgiveness is costly. There's a dying to self in the midst of that that happens that's not easy. Forgiveness is a gift. And oftentimes the other person doesn't deserve it. They don't deserve that gift. Forgiveness is a commitment. It's a commitment as Ken Sand, he's the the head of a, a ministry called Peacemaker Ministries. He notes that forgiveness is the commitment to no longer bring the incident up and use it against the person. Again, forgiveness is the act of releasing a person from an offense as well as the resentment you have. Forgiveness is significant. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's an act of your will. It's an action. The that same guy, James Robertson, um, pastor in New York, said this. I'm going to close. He, he wrote a devotion on Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, there's a parable. This will be your homework for tonight, tomorrow. Go, go and read Matthew 18. There's a beautiful parable that depicts this um, process of repentance and forgiveness. And there's a king and there's a servant. The servant owes the king some money and the king forgives him. And then the servant goes and demands the second person to pay him back. The king hears about it and takes this servant who was unforgiving even when he's been forgiven and throws him in prison. It's, again, beautiful parable. But here's his thoughts on this process. The clear point that he's making, that Jesus is making, is that the debt we owed God was more than we could ever pay. While we were deserving of death, the king of kings decided not only to cancel our debts, but to pay the cost himself with his own body. Unforgiveness among his subjects, that's you and me, is like the ingratitude and hypocrisy of the king's servant. If we aren't releasing someone else's debt, our unforgiveness is proof that we don't grasp the millions of sins we've been forgiven. Like the king's servant, our unforgiveness is proof we are still in bondage, proof that we aren't truly set free. And while being mocked and murdered on a cross, Jesus said, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. LFC, let's be a church who prioritizes and pursues restoration. Let's be a church who trusts him, who seeks repentance, the big things and the little things in our lives. Let's be a church who forgives, 
who comforts, and who reaffirms our love for those who need it. Let's be a church known for the way we forgive those around us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful this morning uh, for not just an opportunity to worship, but for an opportunity to just proclaim truth to one another. Uh, Lord, we're so, so grateful for your son, Jesus, in the way he, he modeled this 2 Corinthians 2 for us. We're thankful that you're, you're a God whose heartbeat is restoration because, honestly, I need it daily, and I'm grateful for it, Father. Lord, I thank you that, that I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm I'm accepted and you were condemned. I'm alive and well and your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Father, that's an amazing love and I'm so thankful for it this morning. God, we love you and that love in a way pales in comparison to the love you've exposed us to. So thank you for your son. Amen. You know, this morning we've got a couple coming up here in a little bit to pray. They would love to pray with you, for you, through with some of these broken relationships. Also, I just want to note, we've got those prayer cards. If there's any way we can be praying for you through what you're going through, we would love to. We look forward to that, as well as if there's anything we can do to help. Um, You don't have to walk through this brokenness alone. We love you guys. Is God your king? You know, we have an opportunity to honor the king today in the way we act, in the way we forgive, in the way we comfort, in the way we love. Use today as an opportunity to honor that king by doing just that. Not being perfect, but by calling sin, sin, and by pursuing Christ in the midst of every single situation you encounter. We love you guys. Have a great day honoring our king.